So it's good to be back. I would start as, as one does if one is from Boston at some point in his life with a poem by Mary Oliver. And she says, ah, do you have time to linger for just a little while out of your busy and no doubt very important day for the goldfinches that have gathered in the field of thistle for a musical battle to see who can sing the highest note or the lowest or the most expressive of mirth or the most tender. Their strong, blunt beaks drink the air as they strive melodiously, not for your sake and not for mine, and not for the sake of winning, but for the sheer delight and gratitude. Believe us, they say, it is a serious thing. Just to be alive on this fresh morning in this broken world, I beg of you, do not buy without, walk by without pausing to attend to this rather ridiculous performance. It could mean something. It could mean everything. It could be what Rilke said when he wrote, you must change your life. So I've been thinking a lot about suffering this year. Um, and that's kind of unique for me because I spent a good part of my middle years in Buddhist practice and in the recovery world um, being um, some version of uh, Mary Poppins, um, of Mary Poppins of Buddhism. Um, and thinking that folks concentrated much too much on suffering and that um, didn't seem didn't seem to me like um, uh, we spent enough time thinking about the end of suffering and life um, in a world where kind of suffering and non suffering both existed and, and were in better balance. Um, and so <clears throat> this week has been particularly up for me on that regard. Um, uh, 29, 28 years ago, excuse me, yesterday on December 1st, World AIDS Day, I walked into the church basement at Trinity Church in Boston uh, and attended an AA meeting. Uh, and I didn't know what I was in for. Um, somebody had recommended it to me. And uh, and so I thought, I, I knew it was time to do something, and I thought I would do it. Since so I went to that meeting, um, expecting just to have a sample and see what was going on. Mm -hmm. And some of you have heard me tell the story before, but um, the, the woman at the door was a woman who I worked with in my office, who I had no idea she was in recovery. And she took one look at me, threw her arms around me, which which I was not fond of, but um, threw her arms around me, gave me a big hug and said, oh, we're so glad you're here. We've been saving you a seat. Um, and then I got downstairs and the person at the door, um, who was uh, the person who was, uh, there was a person at the door, um, but the person who was uh, leading the meeting, what they called secretary, was the bartender at a bar called Fritz in Boston, um, which is where I had done much of the uh, uh, damage to myself with uh, drugs and alcohol. So I went to that meeting and I listened to people tell their truth and to talk about what their lives had been and what their lives were becoming and what their lives were like now. Um, and I thought, you know, there may be something here. Um, and so I'm one of the lucky ones. I have not had an alcoholic beverage or any cocaine in the 28 years since that day. So yesterday was 28 years clean and sober. But what's important to me um, and what I keep thinking about is is how I got to that room in the, in the basement. And how I got to that room was that two years before that, someone invited me, recommended to me, um, the minister of the local Unitarian Universalist Church recommended to me that I go to, that really is a friend of Hartford Street, he's um, just having a moment, um, 
that recommended to me that I go on a retreat. And she said, ah, I'm going on a retreat at, a, you know, someplace where you just sit quietly for a period of time. And so in my mind, uh, as a little Catholic teenager, we had gone on retreats where you go off somewhere and everybody, you know, prays and does collages and, you know, talks about whatever's important in life. And then goes outside and smokes dope and, and all sorts of other stuff that went on. Um, and then at the end, you looked at each other and said, oh, we'll always be the best of friends. And then you left and never saw those people again. All of which appealed to me. Especially that part at the end where it's like, oh, we're going to be best friends. I'll see you every day. Goodbye. Um, and, and I realized then, and I realized when she said I should go on a retreat, that, that there were some patterns there um, that I wanted to look at. And, and so that made perfect sense to me. And so this year, as I've been thinking more and more about this whole concept of suffering and non-suffering, um, I realized that I have in my own life a real metaphor right now going on. Um, when I woke up this morning, I have I have fairly serious arthritis. Um, and in my hands at this point, sometimes when I wake up, these two fingers are locked. So they wake up and they won't move. And because it was rainy last night and this morning and I had slept with the window open, when I woke up, they were locked and they hurt a little bit. And so a regular person, like most of you, would have said, I need to get up and run some warm water on them and stretch them out a little bit. I said, Darlene Cohen, who was a dear teacher of, of mine at one point in time in, in a program, um, had arthritis that so crippled her hands that she couldn't move or do certain things. And so I clearly was on the way to becoming Darlene Cohen, Cohen um, in, in this morning. And I didn't just, because because it's such a good metaphor for what suffering really is. I didn't just go to being like Darlene and that she was still able to do the things she wanted to do and in her Buddhist work and in her community. I was well past that. Like, now how would I do? And what will I do? And what will I not be able to do? And who will I have to get to help me? And I was, a whole process was going on. So I stopped. I stopped and took this hand and moved those two fingers off. And the whole thing was over with. Um, but I had suffered mightily for a few minutes in between. And, and it became clear to me that that's one of the things um, that, that, we're, that really is um, the truth of suffering, is that there is the fact of what we're facing in the present moment or in our lives at this time, and then there's the stories we tell ourselves about, about what's going on. Um, and so I know that, that for me... Um, what was required when I went to that room, to that retreat, um, and eventually to the rooms of, of recovery. Um, and what's still required for me today is that I figure out this idea of, of what is suffering, but more important, what's the source of that suffering? You know, so the two bent fingers suffering, the source of that suffering is thinking, will I be able to handle this with as much grace as Darlene Cohen? Some of you knew Steve Stuckey, who was an abbot at, at uh, Zen Center for a while, and he gave him the most profoundly beautiful talk. It's on tape at Zen Center if you want it, when he knew he was dying of cancer. Um, this beautiful talk. And I went through a period of about a year where I thought, everybody said, he died with dignity. He knew how to live that last year. He knew how to continue to show up and be present. I did not have a diagnosis of any kind, of any disease at all at that time. But I spent a great deal of time trying to figure out when mine came, how would I live at least as well as Steve sucking so that people would talk about me having died, um, <laughs> having died with dignity and having had a very good last year that I could be proud of. Uh, no diagnosis. I was as just as healthy as, well, 
physically anyway at that point in time. Um, so, you know, I thought, well, what is the source of some of this suffering? And what was what was the deal at this retreat? And so I think the deal for me that I started that I started to look at and really think about is I think that suffering and not suffering, not suffering for me, um, is truly about connection. And the connection that I have with all of you and with other people in my life and my communities. Um, and that suffering comes from that connection not being as strong as I would like it to be, not being well tended to by me at some, some days and points in my life. Um, I ran into a good friend about two weeks ago and I walked up to her and I was delighted to see her. And so I gave her a hug and said, how are you? Um, and then I continued to go wherever I was going. And she was the speaker at a, at a recovery meeting. And part of her talk was, she said, you know, like when people ask you how you're doing, and then don't even stand still for the answer. Like they didn't really care how you were doing. They just thought they should say that. And I was happened to be the secretary, so I was sitting right next to her. And like a nice person might have just gone on to finish her story. But she said, I'm not trying to pick on you. But she turned for it. It's like, um, okay. So... Uh, but I think it's if if connection for me is where healing happens, and if connection for me is where suffering, the opposite of suffering happens, where there's a capacity um, for reduced or eliminated suffering, it seems to me well, what's what's the source of for me and and many of us of so much suffering in our lives, and and I think what I learned at that retreat I went to way back then. Um, which is now 30 years ago that I started practicing because I got to Buddhism two years before I got to, to recovery. Um, and the source of that, I learned at that first retreat. Um, and at that first retreat, um, one of the teachings that was used was a teaching by Thich Nhat Hanh. And he said that most of us, um, and I'll quote him exactly so I get it right, um, all of us are looking for our solid ground, our true home, a place where we feel safe, comfortable, fulfilled, and no longer lonely. He reminded us of the Buddhist teaching that our home is actually inside us. Each of us, uh, there's a peaceful island where we can go back to, peaceful island we can go back to with mindful breathing and mindful walking. And so it's like, hmm, okay. So spent a lot of years searching for a peaceful place, searching for community, searching for my opportunities to allow uh, myself to experience peace, ease, and authenticity, and then to share that with, with others. Um, and, you know, I've, I've had some good days when that actually worked for me and, and for others. Um, um, but, you know, what happened for me at that first retreat was really um, profound. It was a four-day silent retreat. Um, Kim Crawford Harvey, the minister who sent me there, did not tell me that. Um, I still like her, but she didn't tell me that. Um, there were a couple of brief talks and even briefer instructions. Um, but what came up for me during the first two days was that I still had my original knees back then. I didn't like sitting on the floor on a cushion because it was painful. Um, and, uh, and, and so that was, that was clear. Um, and more troubling than my knees was what my, my head was doing. Um, because they said, just be quiet. Just, you know, you're looking at the wall. And I happened to win because the Daibazatsu Zunda where I went was all walls um, and one bank of windows that overlooked a pond um, uh, in which there were beavers. It was, it was, uh, Daibazatsu Zunda was on a place called Beaver Lake in Livingston Manor up in the Catskills. Beautiful, beautiful place. Um, and they happened to give me, or maybe they were, Russia, 
if they knew you couldn't put put this guy facing a wall for four days, nobody would have any peace. Um, but after a couple of days, what happened was that I realized um, that an awful lot of my life was about chasing me, trying to find out who I really was. I'd grown up, as many of you had in this room, in a family and in a church and in a school and in a political system um, and in an education system that said I was broken and damaged and sometimes um, um, uh, a psychiatric diagnosis back when I was maybe gay um, and criminal in some cases. Um, and none of those things were true, but I was chasing myself. And so uh, what I did at that retreat is give an opportunity to think, who, who is it that I, that I am? Um, and that I really want to be. Um, and, you know, I got a chance to look at those those definitions that had been given to me that, that you know, uh, that I was effeminate and, and queer, um, not used in the good way we use it now, uh, and all those kinds of things. And then I got a chance, because it was four days of being in the quiet, to say, who am I really? Um, and, you know, who I really was was somebody who did a lot of volunteer work, who did a, a lot of... I'm outreaching the communities. I created a program for street youth and gay and lesbian youth, a health clinic in Boston. So, so I sort of knew that, that I had, um, had, uh, done some things. Um, and then what I realized was that there's a concept that they talked about at that retreat, um, that was called, um, performing, um, to avoid regret, performing to avoid regret. And so it's like I wasn't doing things, um, from some false place. I wasn't doing things just so people would say I was a good kid or a good man. Um, but I was doing things because somewhere in the back of my mind heart, I actually believed those things that they were telling me. Um, so the mindfulness that I roused on that very first retreat that I went on um, told me that I drank and used in order to heal the pain and suffering. That that was my life. And even then I had started this process of wanting to be the happiest person in the room and wanting to insist that other people be happy. I was one of those people in the bar where if you were lucky enough to be in the bar with me um, and you weren't drinking for a moment because you didn't have enough money or you were a little slow, I would buy you drinks because I wanted you to be happy. And the bartenders loved me because the more I drank, the more they got tipped. And so everybody was drinking and having a good time. <laughs> it was the my insistence that I have fun, which meant that you had to be having fun. Because if you were um, in, a, in a bad place, then, then I was likely to be in one. So oh, what was happening on that retreat in just those few short days was that I was beginning to take a look at the suffering thing and the importance of it. You know, there was a reason that I was suffering. I had been told that um, I was broken and damaged, and, and some of that had gotten into my wiring. Uh, and then I had built this life uh, around that and over that in order not to feel any of that. Um, so I discovered that the guy leading the retreat at Daibazatsu Zendo way back then, 30 years ago, um, was a gay man living with HIV. He was in recovery, uh, and just as a bonus, of course, he was gorgeous. Uh, and that last part may or may not be true, but in my memory of the story, he was stunning. Um, and so that made him somebody who I really wanted to listen to because this was a Rinzai um, temple, a very formal, very structured, um, everything um, done on the moment. And I thought if they could have room for him in this Buddhist thing, um, maybe there's room for me also. And that seemed really important to me. Um, so what was um, less clear was how I could maybe use this Zen practice um, 
as a method for um, connection and the capacity to bond with trust and coexist with other people. So this guy talked a lot about uh, equanimity um, and the teachings of the Buddha and what he kept saying in the talks that he gave that we can, whether this could be a transformative process. And the word transformative was the turning of the Dharma wheel for me, that we can, um, uh, the simple message that he, t- that he taught, that this process could be for each of us, no matter who we were, where we were, where we came from, where we were trying to go. Um, and this process, this Buddhist practice could be transformative for all of us. So first teaching that he gave on the first morning uh, after we got there, we came in at night and they put us against the wall and that's what we did for three hours. Um, and then we went to sleep and then we got up and ate something that that was vegetarian. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't know what it was then. I still don't know what it was. Uh, and, but I did learn that when you hold your bowl up, when you, you think you can't eat any more of that, but you hold on so you don't get too much. So I learned some practical things as well. Um, but the first teaching, he said, um, was just um, everybody stop trying to think of Zen as, uh, as sort of Zen practice or, or Buddhist practice, excuse me, um, as an intellectual lock. Just stop trying to have an intellectual lock on something that is vast and boundless. Um, what he said was, um, it's far more than your mind can grasp anyway. So what it should be is experiential. So stop trying to analyze it and stop trying to figure it out. And it's clear he was not looking directly at me when he spoke, um, but he might as well have been. Stop trying to figure this out. I had been, I was at my first retreat, but between the time I signed up for it and the time I got there, I had already purchased about six or seven Buddhist books, um, which I read, you know, the, the, the index in the front and then, read, you know, sort of first and last chapters, you know, as one did in graduate school. If you were, if you were a certain kind of student I had to get this done, but not all of it. And so I was, I was on this intellectual pursuit, and he said, just stop that, just feel it, just have that experience. And the second teaching was just this, and, and I, I have it written. He said, uh, just breathe in with full awareness, taste the breath, appreciate it fully, now breathe out slowly and with equal appreciation. Give it away, give it all away, hold on to nothing. Breathe in with gratitude, breathe out with love. Receiving and offering. This is what we're doing each time we inhale and exhale. To do so with conscious awareness on a regular basis is the transformative practice we call Zen. And it was like, wow. So all these complications that I had cooked up and all these theories that I had cooked up about what might happen if I became a Buddhist and um, what might happen for all of us, etc. Simple. It's breathing. Um, and and you all know that that's the, the heart of our practice is Zen. Um, Shikantaza, just sit, just breathe. Um, and so that was the beginning of that for me. So between his talking about equanimity uh, and the teaching that we take it all in and then give it away, which is exactly how I was trying to leave my life. I was trying to find moments of joy and happiness in spite of oppression um, and homophobia and whatever um, and share it with others. That was I saw that as my mission. And that's what he said was the basics of Buddhist practice, was to breathe it all in and then breathe it all out, give it all away. So I was in. I was in. I thought this would be a good thing. Um, and I still had addicts brain. So I came back to Boston, drove back to Boston, upstate New York. Um, and after the next two years, I was what we call a buffet Buddhist. If there was a workshop or a, a teaching or a sitting somewhere, I was there. Uh, 
It was just, it was like, you know, when you were in the Cub Scouts or the Brownies and you got that, that thing, that sash, and you filled it up with merit badges. Well, that's what I was doing. I was, I went to this, I went to Theravada and I went to some Tibetan and I did this and that and that. And I was, I was you know, going to know all this stuff. And periodically throughout that two year process, it dawned on me that what the man said was stop doing intellectual, stop reading, stop just experience it, just, um, just be quiet and let it happen to you. Um, so between the, those, um, those times, um, somewhere in those two years, I got the message, um, the transformation was possible. Um, and that it was an invitation. Um, and I first read it, and I've shared this in here before, so if you're hearing it again, it's worth hearing. I got the note, the, the information from Sharon Salzberg, who said she was originally attracted to Buddhism because of the invitation and the possibility of life li lived with peace, ease, and authenticity. And in that talk, she went on to say, what we're really all trying to figure out is how to get back to our original self before um, there was the the damage done and before there were the messages sent and received. And I thought, wow, that's that's really powerful. That's something I want. Um, you know, it just felt to me like, yeah, that root of nature, that the getting back to our original self. Um, because what I knew in my professional life, I was by that point a uh, fairly established um, uh, psychotherapist specializing in adolescent and young adults. Um, we had founded in Boston, uh, the Boston Street Youth Outreach Program and the Borum Center, which was a mental health and substance abuse and primary care clinic for kids. So I'm doing a lot of work. And I knew that for them, it's like authenticity. I had, I had um, begun to work with a lot of kids and, and do some thinking and teaching about um, that no one is actually born broken. Uh, very few people, but no one basically for our arguments. No one's born broken. No one's born less than. No one's born damaged. I, I believed, as the Buddha said, um, in the innate nobility of all beings that everyone has the capacity to love and be loved, to heal, and to be healed, and to heal others. Um, and I thought that was really true. What I know is that we were programmed by parents or classmates or siblings or friends or, or others in the community um, to think all those things about ourselves. Uh, the Dalai Lama talked about when they told him that he asked what the biggest problem in American Zen was, he said everybody has such a low self-esteem. And if you all ever saw that video, he starts laughing. And he thought his translator had said something wrong. And he said, what did you say? And the translator said again, he said, how could you have low self-esteem? Self-esteem is about you. You are Buddha. If you don't think of yourself, then I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. You can have, self, you can have low esteem for him or him. Or, but how can you have low self-esteem? It doesn't make any sense. And so I thought the same thing. And, and you know, it's, it's a sort of a humorous take from the Dalai Lama. And, and that reflection on it. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that we're programmed to think those things. And so when I had this coming together of a Buddhist practice that was a transformation from running away from, from your whatever it is you're running away from and finding your authentic true self and living at peace and ease, it's like, ah. So we need to basically do counter-programming. So whatever it was that that we... Um, were taught and learned and experienced and has happened to us, some of it very serious, abuse and oppression and so forth, um, and some of it um, all sorts of other life experiences. Um, but we need to basically counter-program that, that counter-programming. And what I discovered then was that, oh, that's why people keep saying there's the first noble truth. 
because there's no way to get to non-suffering unless we come face-to-face with the reality of suffering. You know, a lot of us had the experience uh, with families um, and parents um, who either didn't know how to love us because of who we were, what they thought we were. Um, and and so, you know, we went around for years, and, and some may still, and that's a beautiful thing to think, that they did the best they could with what they knew. Um, what I believed in my situation, I came to believe when I took a good look at it, is no, they did not. Um, they um, did what the strict Irish Catholic Church they long to told them to do with their gay son, which was try to change him, uh, and then eventually run him out, run him off, because he was an embarrassment to the family. And so um, I didn't get, you know, I had to come face to face with um, years that I had spent thinking I went away to become a proud gay man out, out in the world, um, a successful professional, whatever it was, that I blamed myself for that, that I wasn't connected to family, and therefore I had a weak attachment system with everybody else in the world, and I blamed myself for that. And the reality was that my family did that to me, and my church did that. And so I had to go back and experience that suffering again so I could let go of it, because I couldn't let go of it if I wasn't willing to face it. And facing it for me, I'm not recommending it for anybody else if it's not right, uh, facing it for me was they didn't do the best they could. The best a parent can do is to love their child unconditionally. Um, and they didn't do that. And it may be because they didn't have the training or the equipment or whatever, um, but they didn't do it. And so when I was able, through a lot of um, program work and psychotherapy and uh, working Buddhist practice, to say that, that didn't happen. And then I went to Catholic schools and um, I, in, in high school. Uh, when I knew I wanted to be a teacher, I loved working with young, I started doing volunteer work, wanted to be a teacher. Um, and the guidance counselor said, we're not um, supporting your application to teaching colleges um, because people like you can't be teachers. Um, and I thought, oh man, that's my chance. This is the kind of work I really wanted to do, working with young people. And that was my, and I carried that around. And then at some point, I was able to say suffering. The cause, the root of suffering is that that asshole excuse me, um, told me that I couldn't be a teacher because people like me couldn't be a teacher. And the suffering came from when he said it, I believed it because it ticked a box in the back of my head. And so this process um, was really a process of beginning to say, yeah, there's a reason we focus on the first noble truth of suffering because the second noble truth said there's a cause for suffering. You know, and it's greed, hate, and delusion. It's wanting things we don't have, not wanting things we do have, and the delusion that somehow we can control all of that. And so as I was struggling with all that, um, uh, basically the messages that I was receiving about not being good enough, not being broken, whatever, were starting to fall away, fall into place. Um, and the way they were resi- re- uh, residing for me inside my, my body and mind were that if I worked harder than everybody else, and did more volunteer work than everybody else, then it would be okay that I could make up for those deficits. So I hadn't yet gotten to a point of saying those deficits don't make any sense. Um, but I knew that if I worked harder and did smarter stuff and better, you know, all that, all that stuff. And then a good friend of mine who was practicing in New York at Diapazanzuzendo, as it turned out, um, sent me a copy of the Sensen Ming, um, the, uh, the um, uh, mind of, what's the other name for it? It's gone, just escape me. Trusting in mind. Trusting in mind. Thank you, Mayo. Um, and this version was a tape by Ram Dass. Um, and because just a few of the lines that I listened to the very first day I got it said, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. Let go of longing and aversion 
and it reveals itself. When love and hate are both absence, absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Don't waste time. Don't waste time in doubt or argument. They have nothing to do with this. To live in the realization is to be without the anxiety about perfection. The way is without language. And so, I don't know about you, but a very deep breath when I heard that. It's like, oh. So my solution to living in suffering was to create a whole another architecture of suffering that I built myself. I needed to be better, faster, smarter, more engaged, um, have more merit badges on my little sash than anybody else. And when I read that beautiful poem and really took it to heart and started studying it, it just became like, it's really important, really, really good stuff. Um, and then I read uh, a quote from the Dalai Lama uh, uh, that said, uh, to serve others is the standard of a meaningful life, to serve others. And so that should be, that should be what I was trying to do, is to be of service, to be present for others and to be of service, and not be trying to, um, to repair the damage in my own life. Because that actually is just using other people to bandage my wounds and to take care of my wounds. Um, so what I discovered was that there's uh, two wonderful words in my professional life. One is a projection, and that is where I take what's going on with me and assign it to you or you or you, um, because it seems, seems like such a good idea. Um, and that's projection. Um, I've thought about it, I've evaluated it, now I'm sharing it with you, but it really wasn't sort of sharing. It was really sort of spackling with a great big tool. And then I was taught um, by a therapist friend of mine um, the word introjection. Interjection. And that's when you unconsciously internalize the ideas, uh, the beliefs, and the characteristics of others. Now, my therapist friends might say to me, that's not a good thing. Don't be, don't, don't be having that as an ideal. Um, but I think there's, like all things, there's a middle way there. Um, when I came to Buddhism and I got past trying to intellectualize everything, what I did was look at people who I respected in practice and tried to practice like them and looked at people who I respected um, in the Zendo and tried to sit like them and, you know, breathe like them and and study sutras like them. And I was going to say study koans, but you all know that's not true. But I tried once in a while to study a koan and just gotten better at it lately a little tiny bit. But um, that there were just things that I needed to do, but that I was I had stopped reading about it and analyzing it and being intellectual and started watching people who had a practice that I really respected um, and do what they do. And man, has that been life-changing? Has that really been life-changing? Um, I really believe that, that it's not taking on their characteristics, um, any of you. Um, what it actually is, is being aware, being present with your practice and the depth of your practice and the beauty of your practice, um, and then allowing my body, my mind, my mind-heart um, to have that same experience. Um, and after the experience, um, you know, it would be reasonable to think about it a little bit afterwards, um, but not to start with thinking, um, you know, and not to not to start with, you know, drawing charts at home about how to enter the Zendo and do other stuff, but to watch, to sit and watch, and to take in um, the folks that have practice to do what they did, um, to do what they do. So I came to believe that that was just a really important way um, um, to do that. Um, on days um, when I was feeling really good, uh, I was hoping that maybe people were watching how I practice and, and doing that. 
how I did engage in community Buddhism or engage Buddhism, and maybe we're doing some of that. Um, and on days when I wasn't feeling so hot, um, I began to accept the fact that we don't all feel good every day, um, that suffering is real um, for a whole host of reasons. Um, but in recovery, we have an expression that says, I will not be involved in the direct manufacture of misery. Not be involved in the direct manufacture of misery. So I can have a disagreement with somebody, um, and I can plan on the next meeting I'm going to have with them, and then have the meeting and then ruminate about it afterwards. Or, um, you know, I can decide that that's not what I'm going to do, and that I can remember that each of us has the capacity um, for peace, ease, and authenticity, and that each of us has Buddha nature, um, and, and we are in the process through our practice of actualizing that. And I love a quote by um, Hafiz, the uh, uh, poet, uh, the Persian poet. He said, I wish I could show you, when you are lonely or in darkness, the astonishing light of your being. Um, and I'll just repeat that. I wish I could show you, when you are lonely or in darkness, the astonishing light of your being. And a few years ago, when I first found that, um, I, I sat with that, I studied it, I practiced with it, um, and it has become, for me, um, when I talk about the, the kind of Buddhism I practice isn't monastery Buddhism or temple Buddhism, it's community Buddhism or engaged Buddhism. That, for me, is now, um, you see it over my computer at home, you see it in the books that I read at night, it's on the bedstand. Um, but that's my practice message. I wish I could show you when you are lonely or in darkness the astonishing light of your being, which is a very simple way of saying you don't have, you don't have to suffer so much. Um, you suffer because somebody trained you to think you were less than or broken, or that there's something wrong with you, that you can't get along with people, that you're difficult, or whatever it is, um, uh, that you've gotten old and are no longer relevant. Um, somebody sent me on the occasion of my 20th uh, anniversary. Somebody sent me a clip. Um, uh, Ramdas actually, um, walking down the street after he retired from all of his things a number of years back, and they asked him how he was feeling uh, in this, they were doing a documentary, and he looked up and he said, I've just discovered that I'm completely irrelevant. Uh, the person that sent me that thought it was profoundly spiritual. I, I was enraged for about 10 minutes, he was like, what? Since the day I retired from CIS, I spent every minute thinking I want to be completely irrelevant. Um, but he wanted to watch the video, and, and what he was saying was that, you know, he was free to be himself, um, and if people wanted um, to be in his company and that there was still something he could give, and most of you know, Ram Dass know he was very sick at the end, and, and some kind of stuff and other things going on. Um, but he said, um, I'm here, and if folks want to come, I can do that. Um, but I've done, I've done my work. And so now I get to just be me. Um, and if you had a chance to watch the video, you see how he ended his, uh, the last parts of his life in such dignity and beauty. Um, but I thought that's the message that we get as teachers, as practitioners, as students of the Buddha is a really, um, is a really simple message, um, that says, um, we get an opportunity to say this works, you know, this practice works for me as recovery works for me. Um, and it says that, no matter what I was programmed to think, um, I get this new opportunity um, that um, that I can just show you my light. I can show you what works. Live by example, not by not by you know hammering home um, some message. And so Thich Nhat Hanh, one more quote from my good friend says, "Maybe it's because suffering is not enough." The Buddha spoke about dukkha, and he also spoke about sukha, pleasure or happiness. 
um, healing and beauty. We don't want to make everything into suffering, he says. When we talk about getting out in life, when we use the words extinction, we are always referring to the extinction of something. So that extinction means mean the extinction of ignorance, suffering, attachment, and at the same time, the blooming of the opposite things. Mm-hmm. And um, so to share one quote, there's a wonderful book called Not Too Late, um, edited by Rebecca Solnit and Thelma Young, uh, last name I can't pronounce, so I won't. Um, but it's filled with um, various teachers uh, and, and talking about um, uh, how do we um, save the planet and save ourselves. And so this is a quote from uh, uh, from uh, Roshi Joan Halifax. Um, and she says, uh, and she's talking about, um, she's talking in this book about, uh, some of us receive the precious opportunity in this time to use the struggles that we are experiencing to dedicating ourselves to fostering sanity, care, and justice in the world. We have heeded the call to abandon futility and to meet our moral anguish, our grief, and our fear with openness and curiosity. We have also allowed ourselves to be worked by the power of adversity in order to meet the unfolding and uncertain present with inquiry, hope, awe, and and loving action. And if we can't, then we do not turn away from that. Sometimes we have to pause, not ready to take that next step. Sometimes we make unfortunate mistakes and withdraw. And sometimes we falter. All of that is part of life. And so I think, for me, this concept of the Four Noble Truths um, that I spent a whole bunch of time in my middle part of my um, uh, spiritual life in Buddhism and in recovery, saying people focus too much on suffering. It's because I had no idea what that was talking about. No idea that it's talking about, look at the, you know, look at what's going on in the world. Um, I don't buy into that the world is worse than it ever was because that's, you know, people that say that are speaking from a, a place of privilege and comfort, it seems to me, and they don't remember a time when slavery was the, was the thing in the world. They don't remember a time um, when we dropped nuclear bombs on Japan. I mean, there have been other times. So definitely things are tough right now. Um, but with Joan Halifax and Thich Nhat Hanh and the Buddha um, and Suzuki Roshi all saying to us is, ah, we can show up and know that we have the capacity for healing ourselves and for recognizing who we are in this moment. And then um, we can share that light with others. And then as Hafiz says, um, if I have any mission in life, may I uh, look inside you and remind you, help you find, help you identify, help you recreate that bright light um, that is your existence. Um, And if you find that, um, you too will be healed. Thanks. Okay. Well, if nobody has any questions, then I think it's probably time for tea and cookies. This podcast was recorded at Hartford Street Zen Center, East Sanji, in San Francisco. Please help support our temple by making a donation at hszc.org.